Would you bow with me once more as we enter the Lord's word? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it is living and active today for us, and that again, you want to speak to our hearts through it. And so I pray, Lord, speak through me, your servant. May the words be yours, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'll begin this morning with a headline from a U.S. news article from this past week that declares with a big, bold headline, Baby Jesus is Missing. Now, the picture behind me is of that same news article. There's the nativity, and yet the manger is empty. And the article goes on to say, The missing persons trail has gone cold in the search for the baby Jesus that disappeared last year from a nativity scene in downtown St. Cloud. Since then, the Stearns County History Museum has had to cast an understudy. The manager, pardon me, the manger is currently filled by a swaddled toy doll. We did not ever recover the original baby Jesus, the museum's executive director, Carrie Essig, said. The statue was stolen last December. The nativity has been on display near U.S. Bank during the holiday season since 1988. The replacement is a temporary one for this year, and the doll has been firmly secured in place. Essig said the museum is still looking for a more permanent replacement in a few years, after the museum is confident nothing else will happen to it, and that the original baby Jesus won't reappear in the meantime. Now, to that I will say that if, as he said, the original baby Jesus does reappear, he will no longer be a baby. If the original baby Jesus does reappear. And this brings us to our first point for this morning's sermon. And I'm going to warn you in advance, this point is going to blow you away. All right? So just hold on to your socks. All right, because this point is just going to floor you. All right, are you ready for it? Here it is. Point number one, Jesus grew up. <laughs> there it is. Are, are you just blown away? I can see you guys, just your eyes got big, right? Jesus grew up. Now, I know this seems absurdly obvious, right? We all know this, but still, it needs to be highlighted. In fact, in today's key scripture passage from Isaiah 53, which is a messianic prophecy of Jesus, the beginning of this prophecy in Isaiah 53 deemed it necessary to tell us this key detail in verse 2 of Isaiah 53. It says this, He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. And so here I want to just highlight for you those few key words in this passage, passage that says about the coming Messiah, he grew up. He grew up. Likewise, we find in the Gospels, in Luke chapter 2, the Christmas narrative. At the end of that Christmas narrative in Luke chapter 2, he ends it with this key detail in verse 52. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So here again, Luke highlights he grew. He grew in wisdom and in stature, meaning he started as a baby, but he grew up. So now, why did both Isaiah and Luke feel the need to highlight the obvious in the fact, the simple statement, that Jesus grew up? 
Well, I think a big part of the reason is one that we can see in our culture today, right around us. Because far too often at Christmas time, whether intentionally or I think more often unintentionally, there are many people for whom the baby Jesus never grew up. He just never grows up in their thinking. Because it's not as though they don't have the head knowledge that Jesus grew up, but in their thinking and in their attitudes and in their actions, they keep Jesus as a baby in a manger. And they continue to live as though that when the wise men went back home, that Jesus' story just ended, and then their life can carry on as usual, with nothing changing whatsoever. And in some ways, I think I understand why. Why people do this with the Christmas story, making it this standalone event that I will observe Christmas and the birth of Christ, but not any other part of Jesus' life. And I think why is understandable. The why is because the baby Jesus in the manger makes no demands on our life. A baby makes no demands. Well, I shouldn't say that. A baby makes many demands of their, of their parents, but not on our lives. There's none of the later calls of Jesus for repentance or for self-denial or for cross-carrying or for loving one's enemies. And so if we can just keep Jesus as a baby firmly strapped down in that manger, then after Christmas is over, it's very easy to just put the baby Jesus back into storage along with the nativity until next year, isn't it? And so that way, people get the best of both worlds, at least in their thinking. They can enjoy the warm traditions of celebrating Jesus' birth and singing all the great Christmas carols about it without having to be confronted by what comes next when the grown Jesus, the man, becomes the suffering servant upon the cross. And this brings us to our second point. The manger and the cross are part of the same story. The manger and the cross are part of of the same story. You will have noticed this morning that on the stage behind me, just beside our manger, stands the cross. Now, at first glance, it may seem odd or out of place to have the cross standing up in a Christmas-displayed uh, nativity set. It doesn't seem to fit. You know, we would say, well, this is Christmas time. It's not Easter. It's not Good Friday. The cross has no place up beside the manger. But that, in fact, couldn't be further from the truth. A former uh, pastor from a former era, J. Sidlow Baxter, once said this, Bethlehem and Golgotha, the manger and the cross, the birth and the death, must always be seen together. And so today, I wanted all of you to physically see the manger and the cross together. They're not disjointed, they're not set apart from each other as isolated stories, they are part of the same story. And I wanted you to see that visually this morning. They are part of the same story of God's wonderful plan of salvation for the world. For without the baby in the manger, the Savior on the cross could not have happened. But without the Savior on the cross, the manger would mean nothing. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, our call to worship this morning. It summarizes this truth perfectly, marrying the two together. Listen to it. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world. That is his birth. 
Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and that is his death. Pastor John MacArthur once said, The important issue of Christmas is not so much that Jesus came, but why he came. There was no salvation in his birth, nor did the sinless way he lived his life have any redemptive redemptive force of its own. His example, as flawless as it was, could not rescue men from their sins. Even his teaching, the greatest truth ever revealed to man, could not save us from our sins. There was a price to be paid for sins. Someone had to die. Only Jesus could do it. There was a price to be paid for our sins. Someone had to die. Only Jesus could do it. Now, we have been looking this past two weeks at Christmas according to Isaiah. But the prophetic visions that God gave to Isaiah of the coming Messiah were not limited to only the sweet baby in the manger, but also of the suffering servant upon the cross. And so I want you to take your Bibles with me and turn to Isaiah 53. And in Isaiah 53, we are given the most compelling picture of the suffering servant upon the cross. I already referenced verse 2, where it talks about him growing up. And I want to read it for you this morning, if you want to read along with me. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of day and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Now, what's most remarkable about this passage is that it was written more than 700 years before the events it describes so perfectly. 
Now, some skeptics for this very reason have argued that chapter 53 must have been inserted by editors at a later time because it couldn't so perfectly, in their disbelieving minds, it's not possible that someone could predict Jesus' suffering and death so perfectly seven centuries before the events took place. And yet it stands that Isaiah did perfectly describe how Jesus would in fact, be despised and rejected and scorned by men. How when oppressed, he would not open his mouth to even defend himself. How he would be wounded with stripes and pierced. How he would have no physical descendants. How he would die with the wicked and be buried in the grave of the rich. How all of this would be done to him, though he was, in fact, completely innocent. And it's been rightly said that if today's most brilliant writers, even with the benefit of historical hindsight and with the entire New Testament to guide them, it's impossible that they could write a more perfect description of Jesus' suffering and most importantly, why he suffered than Isaiah chapter 53. And for this reason, many have dubbed it the gospel according to Isaiah. And yet, despite this powerful evidence and testimony, so many still do not believe. Which leads us to our third point. The number one illness in the world today is spiritual blindness. The number one illness in the world today is spiritual blindness. The opening line of Isaiah 53 verse 1 foresaw this blindness because he begins his prophecy by challenging the reader with the question, Who has believed our message? He's essentially asking the reader in advance, will you believe this prophecy? And he's inferring that, in fact, you won't. Who? Who has believed our message? And sadly, the answer in Isaiah's time, as history bears out, and the answer in Jesus' time, again, as history bears out, and the answer in our time, as we see with our own eyes, is the same. Who has believed our message? Very, very few. Quite simply, for someone to be familiar with the story of Jesus, but not see him as the complete fulfillment of the suffering Savior described in every line of Isaiah 53 can only be attributed to spiritual blindness. And yet the religious Jews of Jesus' day suffered from that spiritual blindness, and the majority of the Jewish people today are still suffering from that same spiritual blindness blindness. But it's not only Jews who failed to recognize Jesus as their long-awaited Messiah. This is happening throughout the entire world, including our own. And that includes many of our own neighbors, many of our own co-workers, our relatives, our friends. And the fact is that many, if not most people that we know personally, have some basic knowledge of the story of Jesus, the Savior. Most do. Some will, in fact, attend a Christmas Eve service in a few weeks' time. Some, in fact, many will see or hear something about that baby in the manger. And they've heard the story of the Savior in some general sense. But yet, they haven't seen him as their personal Savior, crucified for them upon that cross. And 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, describes their spiritual condition this way. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. 
Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. He has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. Spiritual blindness comes from the enemy. Now, I don't know about you, but I've experienced in my life some real frustration when it comes to sharing this good news about Jesus with others. Because so often when I'm sharing this, they just don't seem to get it. It's not registering. And so, of course, I'm going to try to explain it more clearly and in a more compelling way, using whatever examples I can think of to make this message that is life hit home. But sometimes it's happened where no matter how clear and how simple I try to make it, something that is so, for me, obvious, as obvious as point one that Jesus grew up, that's how obvious the gospel message is to me. And when I try to share that with some people, I just get a blank look. And the light does not go on in their eyes. And no matter how clear it is in my mind or or my words seem to my ears, they just don't seem to understand it. And at those moments, I found it very important to remind myself of something. That it's not only a lack of knowledge about the gospel that keeps people from believing in Jesus. It's not just about knowledge, though they need the knowledge in order to believe. But it's not just about knowledge. It's also because everyone in this world, as we just read, is under the deceptive influence of Satan. And so they're beginning in this condition of spiritual blindness. And so remember, when we're witnessing to people, when we're sharing this good news, remember, we're not sharing to people in a neutral situation. They are starting in a situation of blindness. We need to remember that. Because remember, in Adam, we all sin. We all begin spiritually blind. And so we shouldn't be surprised when people are beginning in a position of spiritual blindness, even when we're sharing something that seems so glaringly obvious to us and so while we shine the spotlight of the gospel in as many eyes as we can remember that only Jesus can open the eyes of the blind only Jesus can set their souls free but oh how much and how deeply I want them to have their eyes open to the truth of Jesus this Christmas time I was scrolling through Facebook this past week, and I saw this post of Charlie Brown uh, that I believe Angela Graham had put on, on her wall. If we can move ahead a few slides to that, to that picture right there. And uh, it, just, it just caught me. And I love this movie, and I love Charlie Brown. And just his Christmas wish. Dear Lord, all I want for Christmas is for my family and friends to know Jesus. And it reminded me, of course, of the the classic Peanuts movie, A Charlie Brown Christmas. And my boys just love it. And they must have watched it dozens of times over the years. And of course, if you've seen it, you know the the plot of the movie is Charlie Brown. He's he's not so excited about Christmas. And what's the point of all of this? And he's searching for the true meaning. But he's getting nowhere. And finally, at the Christmas pageant rehearsal, he just yells out in frustration, Is there anyone who can tell me what Christmas is all about? And to which his friend Linus, who's standing right in front of him, gently replies, Sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. And then Linus proceeds to go to center stage, and he drops his blankie, and he 
pulls his thumb out of his mouth, and he perfectly recites Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 14, with the key line being right in the middle, verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And after he's done his recital, Linus silently picks up his blankie again. He returns back to Charlie Brown and says quietly, That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. And then he pops his thumb back in his mouth. And I just love that scene because that is what Christmas is all about. A baby who was born in a manger to grow up to be a savior. To suffer and die for our sins. Taking them all on himself so that we wouldn't have to. And this leads us to our fourth and final point. Jesus was born to be punished so that we could go unpunished. You know, people like to try to pin blame on who is responsible for Jesus' death. And Isaiah actually tells us ultimately who was responsible. He says, for it was the Lord's will to crush him. No one did this to him. It was the Lord's will. He decided. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit decided this plan before the foundation of the world. Jesus willingly went to the cross. It was God's will to crush him. He was born to be punished so that we could go unpunished. Verses 4 and 5 puts it better than I or anyone else ever could. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. You notice the emphasis over and over again who this is all about. The focus of why he did all of this is us. We. We. Our sins, our sorrows, our punishment was all on him. And this, this is the Jesus that I want everyone to know. This is the Jesus I want everyone to put their faith in. Because who doesn't need a savior like him? One who loves us so unconditionally. One who suffers in our place so willingly. One who takes our sins and our punishment on his own flesh so that we could go unpunished. One who was rejected in every way imaginable, so that we could be accepted in every way beyond our wildest imaginations. And the basis of this acceptance is an unconditional, no-strings-attached agape love of God based solely upon Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. D.L. Moody told the story of a man who once responded to an invitation that he had given based upon John 6.37. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. And the man who came to the altar call was wrestling with this, that he should be cast out. He knew it. He knew he was a sinner. He knew that he deserved to be cast out. And so he began his argument with Moody, and he said, But Moody, you don't understand. I'm a drunkard. I've been a drunkard for years. And Moody gently replied to him, Well, Jesus' invitation did not say, Whosoever is not a drunkard. 
But then the man said, yes, but you don't understand. Because of it, I abandoned my wife and my children. And Moody again responded, Jesus didn't say whosoever does not reject or abandon his family. And the man said, but you don't know. You don't know the awful things I've done. I've even stolen money and spent time in jail for it. And again, Moody responded, Jesus did not say whosoever is not a thief. And finally, through the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, the man's spiritual eyes were opened. The light went on, and he was right then and there able to see the marvelous grace of God that, yes, this whosoever included him, that he would not be cast out if he came with a repentant heart to the Father. And so right then and there, he prayed to become a child of God, fully forgiven and accepted in the Beloved. And friends, though your sins may not seem as many or as bad as that man's sins, verse 6 in Isaiah reminds us of this. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, that is Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Now, my friends, all means all. And so the bad news in that statement is that we've all, like sheep, gone astray. All of us doesn't matter how many are sins, we've all done it. We've all gone astray. But then the good news is that Jesus took on himself the sins of us all. All. Isn't that incredible? All of us and the sins of those outside the walls of this church this morning. He took those on himself too. And all that we have to do is enter into what he's already done for us by receiving the gift through faith, because the sins, the punishment, have been paid for in full. And so it begs the question, why? Why would he do all of this? Why would he go to such great lengths? Well, I can't put it any more plainly than this. God is absolutely crazy about us. And as much love as you have ever felt in your life for anyone, whether that's a spouse or a child or a friend, Think of the person that you have felt the most love for at the highest moment of of just emotion and passion in your life. God's love for you is deeper still than the highest moment of love you've ever experienced. For think of this, God would stop at nothing, nothing, to make certain that you and I could be united with him forever. I love this quote from A.W. Tozer. And this final slide has it behind me here in closing. Did you ever stop to think that God is going to be as pleased to have you with him in heaven as you are to be there? God is going to be as pleased to have you with him in heaven as you are to be there. Isn't that amazing? And so because of the baby in the manger who grew up, and who became the Savior on the cross, instead of spiritual blindness, we can see. Instead of punishment, we have peace. Instead of wounds, we are healed. Instead of condemnation and the fear of hell, we have the light and hope of heaven's eternal life with God forever. And so from the manger to the cross, may this full truth of the gospel, may it stir our hearts to deeper and deeper love for our Savior. And I pray that it would further fuel our passion to make this wonderful Savior known to the many who still need him. 
wandering in darkness. Amen. Lord Jesus, we continue to worship and honor you, our great and glorious Savior. We love you because you first loved us, because you were willing to go to the cross to take our sins on your own, on your own shoulders. And truly, by your stripes, we are healed. We thank you. And now, as we enter into sharing communion with you, we pray that this would be first and foremost in our minds. What a privilege that we have to share with you because of your love for us. Amen.